And as always, the uh, challenge will be is whether we, we make the gap between this room and the activities of, of life going out here. Or some have said the gap between the, the head and the heart, right? Will we put these things into practice? Will we commit to being true followers of Christ? And will we change our habits and behavior in order to honor what Christ is challenging you to do today? We're going to start by reading through um, a few sections of this. I'm following the rules. Green button, it's on. I always have trouble. How am I doing, Connor? We'll be reading from the ESV today. Any of the verses that will be on the screen will be from the ESV. Sweet. Ooh, nice and small. Hopefully you've got a copy near you. But let's read through this. And when he returned, when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the first of four sections. So we're going to read this section, we're going to look at some key things, and then we'll move on to the next section. But in each of the sections, you need to watch for three main things. One, watch for those themes of Mark. Watch for those themes of Mark, those concepts, those truths that, that are woven together after story after story. Secondly, you're going to look for the two Ps, the priorities of Christ. Through each of these four sections of chapter 2, Christ is going to make it very clear what's important to Him. What's important to Him. And as you'll probably expect, it's going to fly right in the face of what's important to the people around Him. Christ will show what He really values. Secondly, you're going to see some power. You're going to see the power of Jesus Christ in each of these situations. And while He uh, is never uh, brazen and totally in your face, uh, it's subtle in some ways, but there is some enormous power revealed through these verses. So let's take a look at this first story about the paralytic. I think we see right out of the gate the priorities of Jesus Christ. Before that, three themes of Mark. Three themes of Mark that will carry through the whole book. One, Christ is the suffering Savior. And if you want to write a reference down to memorize... As the theme of Mark, I would suggest it be Mark 10:45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
That's the theme, the suffering servant. Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. Secondly, Christ is the King of Israel. Christ is the Lion of Judah. Christ is the heir of David who will rule. Now, when will he rule on earth? Well, we know that that's still coming. We know that there's going to be a period of time where Christ will return and set up a literal earthly kingdom right here on earth. And he will rule. You're going to see that theme of Christ being the king. And then finally, Christ is almighty God. Christ is not only the king, he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is almighty God. These are the three themes. Hopefully you've already made note of them uh, somewhere. Uh, I think these would be valuable even to make a, a little note in, your, in the margin of your Bible if you wanted to. Because every time you open up Mark, these three themes should jump out at you over and over again. When we look at the first verses about the paralytic, we're going to see some things right out of the gate. First of all, Christ's priority. What is important to Christ People are important to Christ. And the heart is important to Christ. Christ had a tremendous ministry. It was a tiring ministry. I mean, the guy was up early in the morning and many times went all day long ministering, giving, giving, giving. And this is a story where he's actually come home. Now, Matthew um, Matthew was away uh, with Eric, right, last few days. They were requested to, to come, and I'm guessing you guys worked pretty hard over the last few days. And I think you got home yesterday afternoon. I woke Matthew up in the other morning, yesterday morning, and he said he's about an hour from heading home, so I know that he's going to get home. Helping people all week long. Picture coming home, getting to the front door, opening the front door, and there's 15 IBM clients waiting for you in your living room. Oh, goody, Right? That's what we've got going here. Christ had come home. What are you supposed to do when you come home? Chill out. Rest a little. Recoup, right? Don't see anybody. Turn on the TV and veg a bit. But not for Christ. Christ came home and even in His own home, it was packed literally throughout the entire house so you couldn't even walk through the front door if you wanted to. There were so many people there. Tirelessly, He ministered to people. And even when... I would have been saying, hey, give me a little space here. Give me a little break. Let's take a little time to recoup. I need a little me time. Jesus Christ valued people so highly that he was willing to keep at it, to keep on keeping on. And even in his downtime, when he, when he maybe was supposed to be resting up, he was teaching people from the Word of God. I think there's a pretty clear application for my life. Am I as dedicated to ministering to people as Christ is? Am I as sold out for being a, a follower of Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ, that I'm willing to set aside me time so that I can minister to people? Our culture is more self-indulgent than ever and it's more entitled than ever. And we slip into that daily. We think that I don't know if we think God owes us or if we just someone owes us, but we, we, we need our me time. Well, Christ as the example didn't have a whole lot of me time. He was very centered on serving others. And I, I guess I've taken this as a, a very clear challenge that as much as I want to rest and rest is good, is rest balanced with a high, high priority 
of honoring Christ. I'll probably embarrass him, so forgive me. But um, I've never, ever been turned down by Nate and Nicole for them opening up their home. Have you noticed that? Maybe you've, you've had to turn somebody down, but not me. And I've always admired how they've got all kinds of stuff going. They've got kids galore just like I do. I know what it's like. But their heart for people has been very, very clear through their hospitality. And I really admire that. Many of you also have just given, given, given. And uh, there's been times where you look and say, man, when do those people ever rest? Well, there's not a whole lot of rest for a follower of Christ, is there? We need to take opportunity when it's available, but we also need to have a priority for people. And I think that's what we see front and center with the Lord Jesus Christ. Came home for a little relaxation time. Not going to be the case. He's teaching the Word again. Then we see some more priority. He's preaching the Word and who comes by? Well, four guys with their friend that couldn't walk. And you know the story, I'm guessing. They couldn't even get in the door. There were so many people jammed in there. So they decided to hit the roof. And they carry their friend up on the roof. Uh, my girls were recounting this. Whoever taught my kids this in Sunday school, you did a great job. They had remembered this story. Barb, that was Barb. Thank you, Barb. They remembered that Jesus was talking away and all of a sudden the roof tiles open up and this guy starts lowering down. And he lowers down in the middle. This lame man, paralytic, couldn't walk. What a huge opportunity for a sign, right? Christ sees this paralytic and makes his priorities very clear. This was an opportunity for a sign, right? What would have been the clearest sign given? A miracle. And he gets to that, but don't overlook the very clear priority of Christ. He looks at this man in the presence of all these people and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now the guy was probably, probably disappointed for a second, right? Why was he there? Why had his friends bought, brought him there? They wanted him to walk. They wanted him physically healed. But what was central to Christ? What was most important? And really, what was in this guy's best interest? The spiritual heart condition. Christ makes a clear statement here of what's most important, and that's the condition of our heart. It's been said that uh, the average lifespan of 70 or 78 or 81 years, put that on a timeline and try and think about eternity, right? It's just mind-blowing. But too many times we get so caught up in this 70-year span that we are willing to sacrifice eternity for the sake of this brief time on earth. Christ was sending a clear message. Don't fall into that. Christ's priority and your priority needs to be the heart. The eternal condition. And he points out that the priority for this lame man is not his legs, it's his heart. And Jesus Christ himself makes a statement that your sins are forgiven. Now we see more. We see more. We know that the scribes were sitting there. Verse 7, look at that. And they were questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? 
Here's the key verse. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and walk. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Not only do you see the priority of healing the heart first and then out of grace and mercy healing the legs, but you see that the, the way that he did that and the timing that he did that shows something far more powerful and far bigger. Christ's power was displayed here. And there's at least three parts of that. Christ had the power of perception. Did the scribes voice this objection out loud? Absolutely not. It says it was in their hearts, meaning silent, meaning no one spoke up, no one had the guts to speak up. But Christ was able to perceive what they were thinking. Now there's a, at least a couple of views, if not three views on this, and, and I don't claim to know all these mysteries, but it's important that you've got a very significant theology lesson right here and it involves this story but it extends to christ's entire time on earth so forgive me i won't speak it as eloquently as as many others would but understand that there's a key concept here and maybe every time you sing a christmas carol think about this key concept jesus christ is almighty god we're going to see later that Jesus Christ, according to John 1, is the Creator. Take a look at John 1 real quickly. If, if you haven't learned this before, this is a key thing that when I learned this, it really was, was pretty amazing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Who's the Word, Bradley? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. All things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. Who created the heavens and the earth? Bradley? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ was the creative one. Jesus Christ was the one that spoke and there was light. Spoke and there is land, spoke in all the different parts, right? Jesus is the Creator. That makes the incarnation, Christ becoming man, so much even more meaningful. Think of the power involved in creating the world. Psalm tells us that that was the work of His fingers. So when Jesus Christ created the world, He used power from His fingers. Imagine the power packed into His existence. And yet when he became a baby, you had God Almighty becoming man. How is that even possible? I don't pretend to know. But there's a key concept. Do you remember Philippians 2? It's usually a passage that we have. But Philippians 2 speaks about how Christ, when he became man, it says that he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of flesh. There's a theological concept that says that Jesus Christ was willing not only to take on flesh, but to lay aside 
or limit his use of his power so that when he walked the earth, he didn't only walk the earth still as God, but he walked the earth as fully man. And this is termed by some as the kenosis. This unbelievable idea of God himself limiting or laying aside or emptying himself of his heavenly power to become man. And so there's a deep, deep concept here. But in these verses, we possibly see this shown. You need to to seek out some of this understanding. Many people believe that when Christ was here on earth, all of the power that he showed was actually the Holy Spirit of God working through him. Why? Because Christ didn't have the power, didn't have the ability? No, don't mistake that. But that Christ willingly limited his ability for a time while he was on earth. Why? To show dependence on God. To show submission. To show humility. And it's a huge concept, and I don't pretend that we can exhaust it this morning, but it needs to be brought up. That we need to understand, we need to search the Scriptures and understand this mystery of God Almighty laying aside or limiting the use of His power and cramming Himself into flesh to be fully God and fully man. So one view when it says in Mark 2 that He perceived, one view is that he was actually able to read their minds by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would we put it past him? Not a few verses later, when you see him taking a crippled paralytic and suddenly making him well, he had that power. So understand, there's all kinds of supernatural power here. There's a second view though. The second possibility is that Christ was so good at interacting with people and so perceptive that it was kind of like me standing up here and saying that the Vikings were just going to stomp all over the Packers and watching Brett's face. Now, what would Brett's face do? Well, yeah, right, right? I could perceive what he's thinking from his face if I was observing him carefully, right? So there's another view that Christ was watching and listening and he could tell from the look on the scribe's face, essentially what they were thinking. Okay, So two different views. I don't claim to know which one, but I do know one thing, that Christ had enormous power and enormous ability and that the Spirit of God, when Christ allowed Himself to be controlled by the Spirit of God, not only did miracles, but was just the most powerful of all individuals that ever walked the, the face of the earth. And so you need to understand that in these verses, there's all kinds of deep theology too that I don't pretend to to know the whole ins and outs of. But I'd encourage you to, to study the kenosis of Christ, this idea of Christ emptying himself and limiting the use of his power for a time while he's on earth. So we see Christ's power of perception. Now whether that's reading minds, or just being so incredibly good with people that he could tell what was being said. There's some power there. You see his power of healing. 
That's the one that blows our mind. I get that if I walk to Finley Hospital and see someone in a wheelchair, I get that those doctors wish they could make that guy walk, but can't, right? So for Jesus Christ to be able to say, get up and walk, that is unbelievable. That is unbelievable. But the forgiveness of sins is the most power of all. The forgiveness of sins is the real showstopper here, so to speak. Don't lose sight of the seriousness of your sin and of my sin. Scripture makes it very clear that the wages of sin is death. Now, I've sinned several times. How many of those can I take back? Any of them? Sure wish I could. They're, they're in the books. They're done. You know it as well as I. We cannot undo what's been done. And every one of us, and the Scripture says, for all have sinned, every one of us is guilty of sin and therefore deserving of what? Death. Eternal spiritual death. And nothing I can do can change that. Thankfully, there is one who could do something about it. And it was Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ looked at this man and said, Your sins are forgiven. How could he do that? Well, some have explained it like a credit card. Some have explained it that when Christ said to him that your sins are forgiven, Christ had a a balance. And what's the thing about credit cards? I can put... I can swipe this and I can put a a balance on this card, right? And do I physically pay money to Hy-Vee when I swipe this card? No, what do I do? I charge it to an account, right? And what has to happen at some point when I charge something to the account? You got to pay it at some point. You got to pay it at some point. And Christ was able to say, son, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because he was going to pay that account. When did he pay that account? At the cross. At the cross. And Jesus Christ himself went to the cross after living a perfect life and not only took enormous physical suffering at the hands of men, but took on every bit of punishment from God the Father for every sin. Sins past, sins present, sins future and paid every single one of those sins. Remember what we said about paying for sin? Can Brett do it? No way. Only a supernatural act of the perfect, spotless Lamb of God accepting every bit of beating and punishment for the sin that you've done and that I've done. That's what you've got displayed here. While people were waiting to see if this guy was going to be able to use his legs, understand the real power here was the forgiveness of sins. And that's the same power that we need to receive. That's the same power that if we think another day can go by without believing and receiving that Jesus Christ died to pay for our sins, then we're we're missing the boat. And I would urge us, consider your heart. Have you had that time where you've understood and you've accepted and received that Jesus Christ paid for your sins on the cross. When that happens, life changes. 
And it's very, very important that we not miss that the most important priority and the biggest power that Christ ever showed was the forgiveness of sins. For those of you that have received Christ as your Savior, how many times do we forget or overlook that or take that for granted? That has to be our daily focus. Our daily focus. One small application compared to the hugeness of that. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. When we wake up and actively remember all that we've been forgiven of by Jesus Christ, when Scott wrongs me, what should my response to him be? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. I've been forgiven an eternity of punishment from sin because Christ took it. Well, when Scott offends me a little, I can't forgive him. But we are professional grudge holders, my brothers and sisters. We will hold on to that. I'm convinced because I don't appreciate the forgiveness of sins that I've been given nearly enough. And so another application, something that has to change in my heart and life, is that I have to forgive. I have to forgive. Whether someone deserves forgiveness or not, do I have a heart of forgiveness? And so there's a, another lesson packed in there. One uh, gentleman said, preach the gospel to yourself daily, meaning remind yourself every day that you've been forgiven. Remind yourself of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And not only show unbelievable gratitude for that, but let that impact how you love and serve and forgive others. That's the message here. That's the message. Finally, the people saw the physical miracle and gave God glory. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God. We never saw anything like this. Praise the Lord. Jesus Christ shows his priority, he shows his power, and he does his job. He brings glory to Almighty God through his ministry. Good stuff. Themes in this, the suffering servant. Christ shows, in this case, with a credit card, so to speak, that He is the forgiver of sins. That He will do what it takes to forgive sins. And we know that that came from suffering and from dying. And then you see that Jesus is Almighty God. I love how He says to these scribes, I know you're questioning in your heart who's this guy think He is. But not only do I have the power to forgive sins, He says, but to show you I'm going to heal this man physically. And it should have been clear to everyone there that Jesus is God, all-powerful, almighty God. The second story, second story is verse 13 through 17. And this is another personal one. Take a look at that with me. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's some powerful, powerful things in these groups of verses. Let's take a look. Jesus calls Levi. Who was Levi? He was a dirty tax collector. Nobody likes the IRS, but the IRS generally is pretty fair. Tax collectors in these days were anything but fair. They were known, they were renowned for ripping people off. They were renowned scoundrels. They were the scum, and the Jews hated them. Because not only did they have to fork over money to the government, but they had to fork over extra because Matthew and his buddies were scamming them and stealing from them. And it was okayed. It was a common practice. These guys were dirt. And when Jesus comes along, Jesus, the pure one, the holy one, Jesus calls the dirtball Levi. And out of all the people that he could call to be his disciple, he calls Levi. And he says, come follow me. It went even further. He gathers in Levi's homes with, guess who else? A bunch of other tax collectors. This is Almighty God, the pure, holy, spotless Lamb of God, sitting with the scoundrels and eating with the dirtballs. We see Christ's priority front and center. Christ is not about appearances. Christ is about people. Christ is about ministering to those who are truly needy. Now that's a little bit of a trick statement because who's needy? Who, well, let me ask it this way. Who is without sin? None of us. So who's needy? Everyone. Everyone. These Pharisees and scribes were hypocrites. They had all kinds of sin in their own heart. Why do you think Christ went to the low of the low? Well, there's probably all kinds of different points that you could make on this. But I think it was to, to remind us of a point that we are no better than the dirtball tax collectors. We don't have some leg up on the prostitutes. Our sin is equally as disgusting and equally as um, worthy of punishment. And I think you see Jesus making a clear point here. Don't worry about appearances. Get to the heart of the matter. And Levi and his friends had just as much need for a Savior as any of the rest. So when he made a point of where his time was going to be spent, where his priority lied, it was with the people that really needed him. Now, we just said, did they need him more than the scribes and Pharisees? No. What was maybe another potential difference? I want you to think about maybe the, the heart of the people that Christ was reaching to. Have you noticed that a lot of times when we hit rock bottom, we finally get it through our heads that we need help? We need a Savior? Did the Pharisees feel that they needed a Savior? Absolutely not. And I think it's unbelievable that Christ would go to the people not only that seemed to need Him the most, but I think it shows that Christ is anxious for people to submit to Him, to acknowledge that they need Him, to soften my own heart so that I can receive Him and so that I can grow from Him. 
Do you get where I'm going with that? The application is do I understand how much I need the Lord? Do I think I'm great? Or do I know that I am desperate for Christ every single day of my life? I've shared that many of you as well go through hard times. I've shared some opposition as of late. And I think the thing that's become clearest to me is how needy I am to depend on the Lord Jesus constantly. And I kick myself... How stupid not to understand that. Why do you have to go through hard times in order to really understand how needy you are? That's the heart of man and the heart of woman. And it seems like we've got to go through the ringer to really get how desperate we are for God Almighty to work in us day in and day out. And so the challenge would be, let's humble ourselves. Let's soften our rough exteriors. And let's acknowledge through the trials that are in your life, there will be trials, there are trials. Use those trials to realize how dependent on the Lord Jesus you are and how dependent on the Lord Jesus I am. Thankfully, Christ sent a very clear message that He is interested in being the Savior for those that will acknowledge that He needs, that they need Him. Christ's power Christ is in the business of changing lives. Matthew, a dirty robber, was changed through Christ in his life and became one of the disciples that went on to live for him. Unbelievable. If you write down the reference John 4, John 4, who's the, what's John 4 all about? Well, a few things, but one of them is a woman who Jesus met at a well a woman whose life had been torn up by all kinds of hurt and sin and mistakes. Torn up with fornication and adultery and and all kinds of things. And Christ met with her and gently, carefully ministered to her and her life was changed. Your life can be changed. Corinthians says, if anyone is in in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Christ is in the business of changing lives. And He showed it right here. He's got the power to take the darkest present and past and turn it into a glorious opportunity for the future. We could go through story after story. You could think of Peter, the Apostle Peter, the dirty forsaker of Christ, the guy that didn't even have the guts to acknowledge that he knew Christ in time's greatest time of need. A coward. And yet months and years later, you see him as an incredibly powerful worker of God's. An incredibly powerful minister that God used to help build the early church. Unbelievable. God can change your life. He wants to change your life. And here's the thing. We're our own worst enemies. God wants to change you wherever you're at. And He wants to give you abundant life, joyful life, life free of the garbage that we bring upon ourselves every day. Will you submit to that? Will I submit to that? Will I be willing to lay aside my own pride and resistance and embrace what Christ has for us? Now let me get real annoying. That means daily time in the Word. And if I'm not, if you're not spending daily time in the Word, you are stiff-arming God. You are saying, God, you are not important enough 
in my day for me to seek to abide in you. That has to stop. I know you're busy. I'm busy too. We're all busy. It's time that we embrace the word of Christ. It's time that we seek the kingdom of God above all else. And I would urge you tomorrow, if not today, start your daily dedication to the living, active Word of God. Start your dedication to seeking God. He's in the business of changing lives. And He wants to use His Word to mold and shape and change you. There's more to say on that. But you get the picture. Stop stiff-arming God. Embrace and abide in the Lord Jesus Christ and He will change our lives. More themes here. Jesus made a very, very clear theme that He was building the kingdom. Jesus is King. And Jesus is God. Every life that He's changed, every life that He's changed, everyone that's received Christ, Scripture tells us we will reign with the King. When Christ called Matthew... That wasn't just a three-year calling. That was a calling to be an eternal disciple of Jesus Christ. That sometime in the future, Christ will sit on the throne here on earth and Matthew and all the rest of you that know and follow Christ will be with Him, reigning and ruling. There's a very clear message. Jesus is the King. And then, of course, the supernatural ability for Jesus Christ to change our lives shows again that He is God. He is God. This one we'll move through relatively quickly. have got about 10 minutes left. This one was about fasting. So read with me, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst, and the skins and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. He's speaking a little bit of a mystery here. You know that? What the heck is he talking about? Wine and skins and cloth and, and bridegrooms. Fasting was uh, um, an action. Fasting was the idea of abstaining from food. The whole point of it was to abstain from food so that you could focus on your relationship with God without the distractions of having to make lunch or make dinner, without the distractions of earthly sustenance so you could focus on spiritual sustenance. It's a very good discipline. It's a very good activity that God Himself encouraged His followers to do. But like so many things, it had just become another outward action. And Matthew 9 would even talk about how the Pharisees used it as this warped badge of honor. Oh, look how hungry I am because I'm so dedicated to the Lord. And fasting became this outward show and Jesus Christ one says no for one the show is not what matters in any shape or form Christ seeks relationship instead of religion 
And Christ makes a very clear point of his priorities. Should the disciples be fasting? Should they not be fasting? You know what he says? I'm here right now. And if my disciples want to do what's right, they'll spend time with me while I'm face to face with them. There's going to be a time where I'm back in heaven and they're on their own. Yeah, then fasting will be good again. But don't get caught up in these outward acts right now. I am right here and my disciples should be enjoying me and learning from me and abiding in me. There were two other examples of this. Two sisters, remember their names? Mary and Martha. And in Luke 10, in Luke 10, you had two sisters hosting Jesus Christ. And you had Martha just being the, the ultimate hospitality person who was zipping around and making the food and getting everything all perfect so Christ would enjoy his time. And you've got her sister sitting there at Jesus' feet while Martha does all the work. And Martha says to Jesus, tell Mary to get going. I'm doing all the work here. And what does Jesus say to her? Mary's chosen the better thing here. Mary is sitting with me, learning from me, interacting with me, getting closer to me. It's good that you're rushing around, but you're letting the external actions become more important than your heart of closeness to the Lord Jesus. And that was the story of this fasting example. The scribes and Pharisees were so caught up in all their actions that they missed the reality that the author of life was right in front of them. And they could have been learning from him and knowing him and soaking up everything they could for the brief time that he was here on earth. And again, the application is pretty clear to me. You have a supernatural opportunity daily to get close to the Lord Jesus. You can't see Him, but He speaks through His Word. And you can speak to Him. And you can learn from Him. And I'm convinced that through His Spirit in your life, He will speak to you and He will guide you. John 15 says, Abide in Me. Abide in Me. Stay close. Stay intimate. There's unbelievable joy, fulfillment, and peace in that place. But how many externals do you let get in the way? How many times are you doing, 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 and forgetting to abide? I do it all the time. That needs to change today. And just like Jesus made it very clear, it's about a relationship with Christ, not about all these external activities. Can spiritual disciplines like fasting and and different things help draw you closer to Christ? Yes, if it's in the right order. Can coming to church bring you closer to Christ? Yes, it's essential. But coming to church as an external activity doesn't accomplish much at all. It's got to be through a heart of seeking Christ. Christ's power. It's subtle here. What does Christ call Himself? Brett, what, is, what does Christ call Himself in these verses? Did it jump out at you? Yeah. Christ is the bridegroom. Well, what's that all about? Well, if you've been to a Christian wedding, you've heard what it's all about, right? What's the best verses or the, the most common verses at a wedding? Ephesians 5. And what does Ephesians 5 say? Let's take a quick look. This one we, we have to take a look at. It's essential. Christ's power is foreshadowed through His example of being the bridegroom. 
And in Ephesians 5, while he's giving challenge through the Apostle Paul to husbands and wives, he makes it very clear. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's the work that Christ did for those that know him. Christ is the bridegroom. And his job, his role, was to pay for the sins that were built up so that you can be presented to God the Father as pure and spotless. Now I know you and you know me and we ain't spotless. We got all kinds of blemishes. But the power of Christ is to take dirty sinners and clean them up so that when God looks at you as a follower of Christ, He sees only holiness and purity. If you read the book Grace Walk, it's an enlightening time that when God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We think we've got to do this, do that, do that. When Christ looks at you, positionally, you are a perfect ten. You are pure, you are holy, you are spotless in the sight of God. Practically, we've got some things to work on, right? But God views you as perfect and holy. He accepts you, He loves you. And it's because of the power of the bridegroom. Because Christ had the ability to clean up the, the terribly blemished. And so he's foreshadowing that here. It's pretty powerful. Did the scribes and Pharisees get it? No. No. But we can grab onto it. We can take joy in that. He's talking about you there. When he's given this answer in Mark 2, he's talking about you. You're his bride. You're the one he loves. You're the one that he sought and saved. Finally, more themes. What did he have to do to be the perfect bridegroom? He had to suffer and die. You never can get away from that. Jesus is the king. Why is he able to say when his disciples should fast and shouldn't fast? Because he is the king. And finally, Jesus is God, the only one that can forgive sins. You see it again in a simple example, but the power of God goes right through every word that he speaks. Finally, finally, and I like this one a lot. These are the closing verses of Mark 2. Take a look at them with me. See all kinds of good stuff here. Verse 23 to the end. One Sabbath, what was the Sabbath? Saturday for the Jews, was the day of rest. Now, where did this come from? Creation. Who was the creator? Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ created all that we know in six literal days, what did He do on the seventh? He chose to rest. And He chose to rest to set an example of one day in seven for rest and for reflection. That's the Sabbath. And the Jews had followed that Sabbath rule. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. As they made their way, His disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to Him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now we've got to pause there. What's this all about? Well, the religious leaders of the time had taken a concept of Christ, 
a concept designed by Christ to let you rest and reflect on him and made it this legalistic rule. They were claiming that because the disciples were walking and, and pulling some grain and rolling it in their hands and, and eating it, that that was somehow work and that they were somehow violating the Sabbath. Legalistic. Externals, right? The Pharisees, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you ever read, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. There is enormous meaning here. I don't claim to understand it all, but let me attempt to uh, hopefully shed a little bit of light. Was it wrong for the disciples to grab a little grain and to eat it? Was that labor that would distract them from rest in God? Sure doesn't seem that way, does it? So why does Christ humor this, the Pharisees? You notice that? His response, instead of saying, don't be stupid, they're enjoying a little snack. Instead of that, he says, well, okay, let's assume for a moment that it was work. And he explains a time, by no accident, and you'll understand why in a minute, he explains a time where King David, hundreds of years before, was running from his enemies and starving to death with his men and went into a place of worship and there was bread that was offered to God that according to the letter of the law was not to be eaten. And yet David took the bread, fed it to him, himself and his men, and that they were nourished. And the message is what? The message is at least threefold. One, that bread that was being offered by the priests, that wasn't designed to be offered by the priests so that David and his men could starve to death. Right? Don't be legalists. Don't be so uptight. It was a principle. It was a message. Same thing. This day of rest, this day of rest was to draw you closer to the Lord Jesus. This day of rest was to help you get away from the garbage of the other six days and reflect and focus. Don't get so tied up in the externals. But the second point, the second point was he was making it very clear to the Pharisees. Remember King David, who you all know has authority? Guess who else has that authority? Look at it. Look what he says. He said, I have that same authority. And Jesus Christ took an opportunity, a stupid argument of the Pharisees, and took the opportunity to make it very clear that Christ is king. It was no accident that he related himself to King David. Did you catch that? He was making it very clear that he is the king of Israel. It's subtle, but very important. Jesus Christ is the king of Israel. And he will reign as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Secondly, look at that last verse. Look at that last verse. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now why could Jesus speak as to why the Sabbath was created? He created it. This was His call. 
And he lets the Pharisees know, hey, if there's any question about the Sabbath, you talk to the one that made the Sabbath. You talk to the one that set it up before you were even a thought in, in your mother's eye. He is the Creator, the power. Don't mess with the Creator and quibble about externals because He has full authority. But there's another application here and it goes back to Christ's priorities. God's laws, God's direction, God's actions that He asks of us, they're designed to bring us closer to Him. They're designed to give us rest and peace. They're designed to allow us to have a map to follow so that we can live a life that He would call us to live. And every time that I take my eye off the ball, every time that I get caught up in an external, I miss the heart of why Christ laid something out for me. And maybe the biggest of this is thankfulness. Thankfulness. Have you thought about how many different things God has put in place and how many times He said, be thankful? Over and over and over, be thankful. Why? Because thanksgiving changes our hearts. It focuses us. It allows us to appreciate and embrace the grace of God. And we've made it too many times an external same with coming to church. We don't gather on the Sabbath, meaning Saturday, right? But we still seek to honor a day of rest. And we come together for the purpose of being empowered and charged up so that we can go through the other six days of the week that are downright hard and live for the Lord. We've got to keep that focus. We've got to keep that mindset. God's design is back to focusing on Himself, drawing strength from Him. And so he says that the Sabbath was actually made for you to draw closer to God. Not some external group of rules that you have to follow just for the sake of following rules, but a, a code, a path to follow so that we'll be closer to the Lord. And then finishes the chapter, I think, with an exclamation point of his power. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I love this season because every song you hear in the mall has an opportunity to remember Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You remember Him jammed into a little body of a baby. But you also remember that He is uh, all-powerful, and going to return at any time uh, to bring those that know Him to be with Him forever. So praise the Lord for clear direction. Clear direction of Jesus taking four different scenarios, showing His priority of what's important, showing His power, and reminding us that Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the King of Israel who will reign. And Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, God Almighty. Father, we thank You so much that in 28 short verses You can pack so much about who You are and what You've done. And Lord, we are the ones that have to change. There may be some that have never received Your Son as their Savior, and that needs to happen, Father. There's joy and forgiveness and abundant life waiting. There's many of us that have done that, but we're just wallowing in our own selfishness and self-indulgence, and that needs to stop. We need to submit to You. We need to live as true followers of Christ. 
We need to value what you value and we need to cling to your power and authority. Father, we thank you for your word that it's sharp and challenging and living and active and that it can change us. And so we look forward to being changed as we leave. Thank you for my brothers and sisters and for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.